I think a lot of artistic energy is probably going to go into trying to break these tools in various kinds of ways to expose their limitations, to... Expose their biases. Expose their biases, actually disrupt Mm -hmm. them. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Artificial intelligence was one of the hottest topics in art in 2023, and we can predict that it will continue to be a major topic this year. And while we may debate whether we should be cautiously optimistic or in an existential panic, most of us can agree that the impact of it will be enormous. Back in May 2022, my colleague, frequent Art Angle co-host and art critic Ben Davis, talked about what AI means for art in an episode of The Art Angle on his book, Art in the Afterculture. This was just when the world was first becoming transfixed by images generated by DALI 2, but still before ChatGPT took the world by storm that November. The year and a half after that conversation was recorded, there was a huge wave of fascinating, if unnerving, developments around the fields of art and creativity, the most human of pursuits. As we head deeper into 2024, what forms and aesthetics could emerge or take precedence as AI continues to spread into the daily fabric? Recently, Ben put together a new essay offering 10 speculative predictions about how generative AI might transform how art is made, how artists work, and what an audience might expect from art going forward. I found these predictions very persuasive. Some are unexpected to me, and some are alarming. We'll have to wait and see if he's right, but things are moving pretty quickly, so we may not have to wait too long. In our wide-ranging conversation, we first review some of the most memorable touchstones around AI and art from last year before going in depth about a few of Ben's predictions that jumped out at me from his article. But if you want to read all 10, which I would encourage you to do, you can check out the essay, 10 Predictions About Unexpected Ways AI Will Reshape Art, on Artnet News. Hey, Ben, how's it going? I'm excited to talk to you today. Yeah, Kate, thank you for agreeing to talk with me about this big, long, two-part article. So I'm really excited to talk to you about your predictions and the year ahead. But before we get to that, I also wanted to look back on some of the high points of the last year, especially at the intersection of art and AI, which we're going to be diving very deeply into today from your point of view. Sure. Yeah. Like I said, we're talking about this long two-part piece I put out at the end of last year, predictions for the future of art and AI. But that actually began as a essay I started writing at the very beginning of the year, this kind of big essay, you know, reflecting on anything and everything. And it became too much of an all-consuming intellectual project. Which is just to say that, that the question of AI and art and how the one affects the other it has been really one of the enormous themes of the year in the art world and out. I mean, this is like a huge societal question that, I mean, I read a thing that's like literally keeps people up at night. Some extraordinary number of people are losing sleep, just worrying about the impacts of AI. So this was a conversation that threaded through everything. AI is the hot buzzword in art. It's the hot insult. You know, anything that is bad, people say this seems like it is AI generated. It's something everybody is talking about. I was asked to give like multiple, multiple lectures on the subject. And this two-part essay is kind of based on me synthesizing a bunch of things that I said at various lectures throughout the year. In any case, I think there are lots of interesting things going on, as well as alarming things going on in the sphere. I 
think in terms of things that I really liked from this year of high points, highlights of 2023, I think of this exhibition I saw in April at the Swiss Institute by this Swiss artist named Alfata. It's called A Day in the Life. And it was a really interesting installation in the sense that there was this big wraparound video screen and you could either watch it in the gallery or from behind a one-way mirror watching other people watch it. But the video itself was this kind of dreamlike digital animation of, and this is going to sound weird, but an anime baby wandering around this empty modernist house on this endless loop with this kind of dreamlike music. And it just had this incredible mood and atmosphere. You were watching this digital character go about daily chores as like the weather changed and the music changed and the vibe shifted. And it was something that was only possible because of AI, scripted by AI is the way it was described. And I thought it was a real mood and something that made me see, you know, one of the ways that this kind of technology can be used in very creative, evocative ways that really stick in the head. Sounds fascinating. Obviously, you're an art critic, and we're going to really be talking about how AI affects the art that we see and experience, right? Like there's the business aspects of it, and that's like a whole other conversation. It's everywhere. It's increasingly present in museums, and it is getting a dubious reputation among people. So it's great to hear and obviously highlight examples where it it is really compelling. There are multiple and overlapping conversations that are worth parsing out because the economic anxieties about artificial intelligence get rolled into the aesthetic anxieties that emerge from the way it gets used by artists and creative people. And those two kinds of anxieties intersect in different ways, but they're also different things. And there's all kinds of other conversations. This particular conversation touches on so many areas of life that it is important to kind of like parse some of that stuff out as we go along. For sure. What were some of the low points from last year? <laughs> As you were saying, this felt like a year where a lot of concerns bubbled to the surface, whether we're talking about social issues, economic issues, but also aesthetically, aesthetic issues. The future is sort of like arrived, so to speak. Oh, man, I think that the image of the year, in some sense, to symbolize this conversation in just both how visible and how just goony it could get is this artwork, A Girl with Glowing Earrings by Julian Van Deken, a German artist who the Dutch Museum loaned out Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring and replaced it with artworks inspired by it, one of which was this AI version of it generated with Midjourney, which is an AI art generator. And it is just so silly. It's this kind of plasticky, fashion model-y version of The Girl with a Pearl Earring with these glowing electronic earrings and it just looks terrible and it just to me symbolized how really the novelty of what you can do with this technology has totally scrambled everybody's ideas of quality and value and at the highest level you know because this is occupying this huge visible space in the museum and everybody hated this artwork it really got people talking, just maybe not in the way that the museum exactly wanted. Yeah. And in some ways, artificially intelligent generated art is very much in its gimmicky era still. And that was a prime example of that. 
There's also another work that was made with AI that was a big talking point last year, and you wrote a big piece about it. Refik Anadol, one of the big ambassadors of artificial yeah. intelligence, had this big watershed moment at the MoMA in New York last year where there was an exhibition of his work and the MoMA also acquired his work into its permanent collection. And you wrote a very great piece about it. So could you share your opinion on him and has it changed at all or developed at all since that time? I guess that's worth saying at the beginning is to make a little bit of a distinction. There's art made with AI and there's art that uses AI. AI art is mystification of like a lot of different things, you know, and there's all kinds of ways that uh, people are incorporated or using this technology, all kinds of things it makes possible. There's generative AI, these AI art generators and large language models that people are using to generate text and images. And then there are artists like Rafiq Anadol who create kind of living works of art incorporating various forms of artificial intelligence. Anadol is probably the artist who has benefited the most from the AI hype wave. He had this giant artwork in the lobby of the Museum of Modern Art in 2022 going into 2023 and attracted a lot of attention and a lot of crowds. It's a very spectacular artwork. It does a couple different things, but one of them is that it takes the images of the Museum of Modern Art collection and then generates endless new images synthesized from them. And it's an uh, attractive work of art. It's interesting to sit in front of, I don't think it's a great artwork. I don't think it's a terrible artwork. I compare it to a super intelligent lava lamp. <laughs> and I say that as someone who like, I like lava lamps, you know, <laughs> yeah, get me into a room with a lava lamp and it'll put you in a good state of mind. Are you trying to say that that wasn't an insult? <laughs> no, no, it is. I'm just trying to nuance the insult. Um, okay. Because uh, what I'm going to say is that it's become a cliche to compare it to a screensaver. I mean, it does look like a screensaver and people will actually, even at this point, make fun of our critic calling it a screensaver because that itself has become kind of a trope and a stock cliche. And I've even read some commentary, people saying like, well, actually, screensavers are really interesting works of digital art. And I am interested in that. I honestly think it would have been a much more interesting work of art if it was more self-conscious about that. And if it was a found object, if it was a found screensaver, that would be more interesting. Because coming now over a little bit to where I find some of the way that MoMA is incorporating Anadol as an avatar of what artificial intelligence can do, I just find the language around the way it's being presented really mystifying. I mean, in a lot of his artworks, he does this kind of fluid simulation effect, and there'll be this description about how it's like calling on like these huge data sets of like weather or images of nature and so on, and they all look the same. You know, it's just like, to me, it is an actual mystification of the technology. It's like, I took this data set and I did something with it. But it's not a very specific thing. It's almost like that's a talking point around the artwork. And something I wrote about at the end of last year, reflecting on all of this, was there's this longstanding, you know, valid criticism of the language around art as being mystifying. International English art speak, where kind of poorly digested theory and philosophy will be used to kind of brand artworks and you'll have references to French philosophy or uh, 
bits of jargon floating around in the text. And I almost started to miss that when I got to the Rafiq Anadol artwork in that you really see that kind of art speak being displaced by something that's like art tech speak, where instead of that kind of mystifying language that comes from the humanities, you have a mystifying language that comes from the world of tech. And there are just these allusions and references to, you know, complex algorithms and artificial intelligence that aren't explained. It's not clear how integral they are to the effect of what you're seeing. It's almost like just the same way the old art speak was standing in for just saying, this is something very important and sophisticated that you should respect. It's just the same thing, only drawing on a different vocabulary, in my opinion. Yeah, and flowing in a different direction, not flowing out of the art world into the public sphere, but flowing from the tech world into the art world and then into the public sphere. You described it in the essay as a rhetorical sleight of hand, which I thought was a really interesting way to put it. And at the same time, while it is potentially kind of like a trick and maybe like a Wizard of Oz type moment where there's a screen and there's just something quite simple happening behind the screen, it's not something that should be written off. And that's exactly what your essay kind of addresses. Well, I don't think it's very simple. It is very complex. It's just it's not really clear in what way that complexity is important. Like the animations are interrupted by these very complex graphs that explain nothing. They don't do the basic work that they are presented to do, which is like tell you what you're looking at. And then, you know, this is sounding like me nitpicking, but the work raised some really serious issues for me. And, and it's just something I had noticed over time going to a bunch of like art and tech events, starting in the NFT moment a few years ago, that people reference science fiction a lot. You know, literature, art is very important in the conversation that is inspiring and animating the art tech conversation. You know, there are these far out images of the future that is motivating people's explorations of what technology can do creatively. But I just started to notice is like the kind of literary and sci-fi references that people were drawing on, how little the actual meaning, the, how low the level of discussion was about it. So it's like people would talk about, you know, Ready Player One. I would hear people say, oh, I just can't wait for the world of Ready Player One to be a reality. <laughs> Like, did we watch the same movie? This is like a movie right. about how society has collapsed into shanty towns and the physical infrastructure is neglected and that people live in a fantasy world because that's all they have left. It's a dystopia. In that case itself, a little bit of a, a lowbrow dystopia. But in the Anadol's case, you know, going back and reading all these interviews he did and he's referencing all these literary references as inspiration for these artworks that draw on these large archives of text and images and reprocess them infinitely. And one in particular that he brought up was one of my favorite short stories is Jorge Luis Borges' The Library of Babel. It was a, a kind of a literary parable about people who live in an infinite library. They realize that the books contain every book. They permute every combination of characters and text. And Anadol writes about being inspired by that to create these artworks that take data sets and create infinite versions of them. But if you read the Borges story, is this intellectual nightmare that ends with society committing mass suicide. Because when you have every combination of text, meaning collapses. Mm -hmm. And he talks about people looking for meaning in the library, realizing that somewhere in the library is hidden the way out of the library. But then people realize, yes, but all the fake answers, everything that'll deceive you is there too. And it ends with people 
committing collective suicide. There's just a way that I think, and something I write about in my book, and something that informs my thinking about a lot of this stuff, is that the entire way it's being presented at MoMA replicates the balance of forces between science and the humanities right now, where it's like these very sophisticated technical apparatuses with this very scant interest in the kind of literary or creative conversations that they purport to be informed by, and that MoMA really should be the place where those kind of conversations are taken seriously. And in that sense, he's become a bit of a poster child for half of Silicon Valley's very strong optimism about the future. And it's interesting to see a museum kind of pushing that messaging so hard. And so, you know, off the back of your take on Anadol, I would like to turn to the the essay that you wrote with these 10 predictions. You had this great point at the beginning, quote, the fate of art is something tech giants want people to focus on because it has more positive or at least more ambiguous outcomes than AI affects on other areas of life. So basically you're saying that there's some usefulness to art for the aims of the tech industry. Can you expand a bit on that before we get into the nitty gritty of your predictions? I think that you indisputably can do cool stuff with this and there's interesting outputs. And someone like Rafik Anadol didn't get a lot of attention within the art institutions until very recently. The main place that he found an audience was doing public artworks and really with these residencies that tech companies put together. The tech giants of Silicon Valley have been seeding the space to work with artists for a long time. Let artists work with this technology, do cool stuff with it, and figure out ways that can fire the public's imagination. Now, for a long time, I thought that that was kind of like not a charitable endeavor, but was kind of art patronage in the sense of companies sponsoring artists because it was a good thing to do on the side and it made them look good because it was a little bit at a distance from what they were otherwise doing with their various products and services. Also, this became great marketing for this new and very disruptive technology, which has a lot of eerie implications. And that scene of art tech residencies does tend to produce a very particular kind of rhetoric about art and tech, which is just like very uncritically celebratory of just exploring the limits of it. You know, there are plenty of artists who are very critical, and maybe even the majority of artists. I read a study saying that like artists amongst all the professions are the second most suspicious and concerned about AI, with lawyers being the first. So there's plenty of worry and concern about what this means, but there are these ready-to-hand figures that can be elevated, given lots of money to do these very spectacular things that don't really engage with any of those worries. As a matter of fact, if anything, like I said, are conspicuous in like their lack of curiosity about the negative consequences of this technology. So let's get into your points about like what this can concretely mean for the future of art. Can you talk a bit about how you built these predictions? And, you know, it's an interesting position to be an art critic talking about the tech world. You're not exactly a tech critic. So maybe you can explain a bit how you approach this. There are all kinds of problems talking about tech from an art point of view, and I'm very self-conscious about them. I'm not a tech expert. The technical side of a lot of this stuff is completely mystifying to me. On the other hand, I think that the purely technical approach to this stuff misses 
a lot of things too. And I am really most interested in the social implantation of these technologies and how they interact with society. And I think this is my method that if you want to predict what these things do in the future, how they're going to affect the idea of art as a whole, it is as important to ask what the technology can't do as what it can do. I always say that most futurology is just pundits telling you what corporations are already doing. They look around and say, you know, like, the future of art and AI is infinite content on demand. Well, that's just the marketing pitch for this stuff to begin with. But how it's going to affect the future of art in one of its senses is like art is going to have to react to the reality of infinite content on demand. And that is going to affect where we place the accent in terms of what we consider art because a lot of the art tech conversation, in my opinion, is very formalistic. It looks at art as a set of visual inputs and says like, we can make stuff like that at a button push, but they're not just visual inputs. They're cultural objects that have a meaning within a specific cultural context. And even our sense of things as being art-like has to do with the fact that they are a common reference. They are a common language of symbols that people gather around and debate the meaning of. So it is possible that as you have more and more infinitely generated, infinitely customizable content, that you have less of those tentpole images, objects, text to gather around precisely because there's so much more customizable stuff. So it is totally possible, from my perspective, have more art-like stuff and less art. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, that's even what's already happened, you know, that there's like so many images on the internet digital culture age that there are less images that people gather around in that sense that stick around as reference points. That's a real problem raised by this whole thing. And what's going to be considered art in the future is going to have to do with people staring directly at that problem, which is not a technical problem mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah, the challenge is also like figuring out how to fit this into the art history canon, while the idea of art historical canons is also like a shifting terrain right now. Like on multiple axes, we're seeing meaning has shifted and our definitions of what is art and what is not have shifted. And then on top of it, there's this other layer of this new technology. So that's maybe a great transition to get into, you know, your first prediction, which is, you know, about meaning. You try to parse AI's sensitivity to detail and what it will mean for artists trying to make work in and around these tools. And then in the second prediction, you actually talk about symbolism and systems of meaning creation and how this could be affected. So maybe you can try to explain those two together. I guess it is at this point that is worth making a distinction between AI-generated art as such and lazy uses of AI to generate art. Because <laughs> they're different things, and I think they get conflated, particularly this last year. And I think there's a temporary condition that's wearing off has confused those two things mm. for people both positively and negatively, whereas like kinds of images that took a lot of effort previously are now easy to generate. And that's made some people feel like they're like creative geniuses because they can put a few words into an art generator. But it's not creativity, it's a shortcut. <laughs> it looks like things that took creativity to generate, but it no longer takes creativity. And the general perception of art is just going to adjust to that. And that will affect what people take seriously. That is what 
one component of what art is, is what people take seriously as something that feels like it's worth your time because a lot of thought went into it. And there's a lot of thought that you can be extracted from it. It's something that didn't make it into the article. Something that inspired me negatively was this viral tweet from this ultra-conservative commentator, Ian Miles Chung, um, from last year, where he wrote, AI art does not lack soul. ChatGPT does, but that's because it sucks and is primitive. What comes out of mid-journey is in fact quite aesthetic, and you sound like a pretentious art snob when you try to impose metaphysical concepts onto beauty. Most real human-produced art isn't worth writing home about either. It's also worth keeping in mind the AI doesn't make its own art. It's generated by human prompts. It interprets those prompts as best it can based on billions of photos and images through machine learning. The results are really quite spectacular. And then he posted this image of a boat, and <laughs> it looks like a fantasy image. I I can't quite describe it. It looks like a fantasy image from like maybe a board game or something. I look at it and I'm like, this is like the laziest mid-journey output. Um, And when you zoom in on any of the details, they're all like really warped and mutant, which is like a quality of a lot of mid-journey art from this last year is that it gives the overall impression of something cool or interesting. And when you look at any of the details, you can see the lack of attention, the laziness, you know, at the level because the computer is just guessing at something that gives you a general impression of whatever it is the prompt described. Now, that is a technical problem and is getting worked out. I mean, the new version of MidJourney is much easier. It does much higher resolution images. And the moment when you can like look at an image and scrutinize its details in order to discover whether or not it is AI, that kind of new form of paranoia you have is like Hmm. constantly wondering how much human input and how much AI input went into something. That moment is probably passing. However, the question just because of the sheer flood of images that this enables is going to still be for people. Is this a lazy use of this technology or not? Our ideas of art will have to find their level and their definition of what an image that is worth gathering around is. So there has to be some way to symbolize the human intelligence that went into something. And so I'm just speculating in my piece, but I think that that probably does appear in the kind of synthesis of meaning and detail. The details are going to matter much more in terms of like how much thought goes into them, what they mean in terms of an overall story and whether or not they feel arbitrary or not. There's just going to be so much arbitrary imagery. You actually brought up this Durer work, Melancholia, and made a mid-journey version of it to sort of illustrate this point about not only detail, but also like how symbolism and meaning generation could work. Could you explain a little bit about what your experiment was there and what your takeaway was? Yeah, it's really speculative, but I do think that there is something to this thought that like there is all this writing scholarship on the medieval way of thinking about the world, which is one where everything has symbolic meaning because like it's all believed to be like an avatar of like an underlying consciousness, you know, godly consciousness. And in some ways, I think the kind of consciousness about an image that the AI inspires is similar because it's not a photographic image. It's an image where every detail of it is synthetic. A consciousness went into it. There's a consciousness behind it. And so I just would speculate that 
the form of reading an image that this kind of like technology inspires really encourages people to look at every detail of an image like there's a meaning behind it. And for the most part, the meaning they're going to find is a zero. There's no meaning behind it. But it is the artistic experience is going to be about, because that is what takes effort, is like the kind of energy that goes into creating images where the details are meaningful and it adds up to a meaningful whole and cuts against the feeling of just total arbitrariness that is filling up the world. The flip side of that is obviously that there is a lot of human-generated art that once you peel back a little bit, there is a lot of meaninglessness there too. An aggregation of a few reference points are like pulled together into an 800-word press release. So in a sense, my interpretation of what you were saying gave some reason for optimism where like because of this flood of imagery, we're going to have to become really precise in what we're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I mean, but there's a before and an after of the AI technology. You know, that is a thing that people like to say that most human art isn't anything to write home before, but it took a human to make it before. And so it had at least the meaning that a human constructed it. And you could read that meaning back into it. These processes are so technically complex and eerie and odd that it doesn't really even have that basic human story in it. But that also does, unfortunately, I think, change, you know, how your patience for that kind of arbitrariness. If someone had sent you a rhyming poem about your friend group, like, a year and a half ago, you would have thought, that's so thoughtful, so interesting, (laughs) so awesome. I literally have gotten multiple versions of that from people, texts that are like in rhyming verse, and I can barely even bring myself to read them. Because I know that they didn't write them. It's just like a chat GPT generated piece of text. It is the case that there's a lot of human art that is as meaningless as a lot of AI art. The existence of AI art now will affect how people treat humans. I mean, that is just the case. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out that you talk about that in your book of essays that came out in 2022, Art in the Afterculture. Specifically, you were writing about Abby Warburg, the 20th century cultural theorist who made the acclaimed Nemesine Atlas, which is you know a major pictorial project. And it is sort of an aggregation of images that are pulled away from their sources and pulled away from text. This was made at the turn of the 20th century. And this kind of reveals, in a sense, like how machine-powered search engines work and how AI image generation works. But like as you're pointing out, there's just such a crucial difference because there's a superficiality to the way that machines are culling information together, whereas a project like that has so much depth and so much symbolism and a comprehension that is still ultimately human. Yeah, Abby Warburg, a very important art historian who created this, something like a combination of art history and an artwork itself where he took all these images of artworks and kind of categorize them according to this very elaborate system. And I should say there is criticism of that artwork itself, that the atlas, which categorizes them all together, all these very important art historical images together, itself expresses the flattening of images, characteristic of a technological society. Like People already had that kind of argument about Abby Warburg. And I think that it does connect forward to some of these conversations about synthetic images and how easy it is to like extract properties of images and recategorize them and move them around. 
in new ways in that sense. On the other hand, the Nemesine Atlas has been tremendously generative project for people. And the way that artificial intelligence and new technologies remake you look anew back on the past does make you look anew on what is actually interesting about a project like that. And it is how weird it is. It is like how weird Abby Warbler's categories for these things are. The very specific, quirky way of thinking that he brings to it is what makes that interesting to me in a way that some of this technological stuff, which takes the idea of like recategorizing, infinitely manipulating, rescrambling images, but leaves out the quirky, weird specificity of it. It's the specificity of things that I think is really where the art part appears. So let's move on to video games, because that was another great prediction zone. How is this a key field that we should be thinking about, and how should we be thinking about it? Okay, well, video games are, I think, a really interesting test case for how you think about creativity and artificial intelligence. Within the art field, there's a little bit of instinctive resistance. Like I say, people are always like, AI will never make real art and things like that because it lacks the human touch. But you have the massive counterexample of video games, which are the largest cultural industry by far. I mean, I don't need to tell you all the stats about how many billions of dollars people spend on video games or how many millions of hours people spend in video games playing video games. Like these are huge things. And whereas people care a lot about the human touch in something like painting, People don't really care that a lot of the landscapes in The Legend of Zelda were procedurally generated. These things aren't possible without AI in the first place, and people have intense emotional experiences with and in video games. The artist I mentioned at the top, Alfata, I was reading an interview with them, and they were saying one of the artists that inspired them was Hideo Kojima, who's the uh, video game auteur behind Metal Gear Solid. These are very important creative references to people. Now, there's plenty of art about video games and does critical spins on video games and references video games in a pop art way, but not as much as you'd think. Not as much as you'd think, given how dominant they are. And I think that's because the technical skills in order to like engage with video games as a cultural language are a little bit beyond what the individual artist can muster in general. So just as an obvious prediction that I think one thing that is likely to happen in the future of art is more and more of a convergence between video games and art, that there'll be a lot more artworks that look like immersive environments that are interactive in terms of the kind of storytelling that they do, that look more and more like what is currently associated with high-end video games sort of breaking free of the indie aesthetic that has characterized a lot of the video game art that we know, that's just very likely to happen. Yeah, it's definitely an area with a lot of room for growth. I mean, there's fantastic artists like, you know, Lauren Slack or Ian Chang that are making work in this field. But considering how relevant it is, there are very few game aesthetics that are also interactive. You know, as you say, the aesthetic might even be borrowed, but it'll be interesting to see more artists actually use video games as a sort of interaction social space in the future. And I should just say that this is like an extension of a thought about the waning of the power of the individual image, right? Mm. Because it's like when images become so plenteous, it's hard for them to become the single referent that you gather around and like things that function as systems or environment become more like the minimum criteria you have in order to get like a sufficient critical mass of interest around something in order for it to function like that. 
So what about prediction six, your term, quote unquote, parasocial aesthetics, which you coined in another text as a way to describe audiences relating to artists as characters and online celebrities? Why does AI generated art mean that there will be like an increase on that level specifically? Yeah, parasocial aesthetics is a term I also coined last year to talk about how something you really see through social media is audience relating to artworks through the artist as a person, you know, artists as micro-celebrities. And that has been a really important dynamic of the recent past, is that artists are called upon, there's this term, presencing, the pressure to be present in social media or online in order to gauge an audience, have a continuous relation to them. Well, I think this is one of the ways that what I am interested in in this series of articles is a little bit different than a purely technical conversation because, okay, so let's assume that AI can generate something that looks exactly like something that any artist can do, which is true. Already at this point, any artist style can be harvested and turned into infinite new versions about any subject matter you could want or desire. That having been said, what is the value of the art object after that? Now, fortunately, Art has been working on this problem for a really long time because one of the great messages of contemporary art is that two things can look the same but have very different meanings depending on their social emplacement and context. So technically, something can be formally exactly the same. It is not the same in the sense that one artist did it and just a total simulation or a faker or a copier did it in the other case. I think to a lot of tech people, People think of this as a distinction without a difference because they have a very formal idea of what art is. But it's actually really important. I mean, there are all these studies about like frauds and forgeries that people, even when they can't tell the difference between a real artwork and a forgery, once you tell them that it's a forgery, they tend to report it being less pleasant to look at. Like the idea of authenticity, the idea of a a relationship to a person is something really important. And now as the social media world has gone on and people are exposed to lots more images and you have more images of artists, and I just think that it is inevitable when you can't really tell what's real. You can't really tell what is generated by artificial intelligent art generator and a human because you're consuming most art through digitally mediated spaces anyway, that is going to put a lot more pressure on artists of all kinds, including digital artists, to show the human part of the labor. You know, what are you doing? What of you am I getting out of this? I just think that's almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. So that the ubiquitous digital creativity puts more pressure on the artist to be humanly present. I mean, it's a dialectical way of thinking about things, but I think it's a pretty obvious consequence. It's already happening because the more digitally mediated we are, the more pressure there are on artists to be present as people within those digital spaces. It's definitely going to be turbocharged by this particular technology. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that the other kind of prong of that same issue brings us to another prediction, which is this idea of the sabotage chic. You know, and this point concretizes itself in the news stories that we've been hearing about these kinds of copyright lawsuits being levied against these companies by artists who feel like that uniqueness is also something that's being stolen from them. So maybe you can speak a bit about this agitator impulse that is kind of coming out in a lot of aesthetics and with a lot of artists right now. 
Yeah, and I have to say, this is already one of the dominant ways artists think about technology. You know, there's the thinker Douglas Rushkoff, who I've seen speak many, many times. And um, one of the things he talks about is how he's been observing art and tech for a long time. And there's this like flip in history where artists are the big dreamers imagining impossible things. And the tech people are kind of like the drones who get it (laughs) done. And then he says there's this flip where it's like the tech people who are like doing these like mind expanding things. And the artists kind of become more like the Jiminy Cricket character, the moral conscious, like, well, what are the consequences? And that's just a flip in the relationship of how power functions. But no matter what, this technology is going to do wondrous things. And, you know, everybody's using it. Teachers can't keep their students from using it. There are applications of it that do save you from various forms of drudgery. But it is the case that it's going to enter an awful lot of people's lives as a disruptive thing. You know, this week, kind of the news is like transfixed by this story about pornographic deep fakes of Taylor Swift going viral on Twitter faster than anybody can stop it. And this is just at a very intimate level. This technology, I think, will be remembered kind of like as if these tech companies were like handing out flamethrowers on the street corner. Mm -hmm. And that means that I think a lot of artistic energy is probably going to go into trying to break these tools in various kinds of ways to expose their limitations, to expose their biases, expose their biases, actually disrupt Mm -hmm. them. And that is hard to do because these are immense corporations. But exactly for that reason, what is rare is what feels like art, the things that kind of break the system. Don't use it in a default way, but use it in an extraordinary way or do something extraordinary to it. That's going to just feel like what is more special. And I think given how total this technology is and its implications in people's life, I feel like the rare case will be the people who figure out ways to break it. Yeah, maybe you could provide an example of an artist because this is already happening, right? In 2022, there was a Swedish artist named Stef Maj Swanson who claims to have discovered within the code of one of these AI art generators this character named Loeb, which is a kind of just gore-covered, scary female figure. And she claimed that if you misuse the technology, this character just kind of manifested inside of it. Like it said something about the logic that it was trained on, that if you used it in a certain way, this character was like haunting the data set. Now, it is a little bit of a mystification, I think, but that idea sticks around. This character is kind of grotesque and scary in a memorable way. But what sticks around is the ghost story. The idea that it's not that it generated this image. It's that if you misused it in a certain kind of way, it generated this image and that told you a story about what this technology meant, its biases, what it thought beauty or ugliness looked like. That's like an example from a year and a half ago already. And things just kind of get more radical as they go on. So a lot of the big AI and art stories this year, there was a lot about technologies using it. But then there were like stories like there's this computer scientist named Ben Zhao, the University of Chicago, who has this project called Nightshade, which is an initiative to let artists poison the data sets of AI. That is like if you treat your image with this application and then your art is added without your permission to some of these data sets, then the promise or the proposition is that it will poison them and kind of disrupt what it can do. 
And if enough people do that, it'll disrupt these systems. That got a lot of attention because that, I think, to people feels like a meaningful gesture because it allows a conversation about, you know, consent and art applications even work and the relationship of individual human artists to them and what your agency might be. And that that captures the imagination, this idea of breaking the technology almost more than the technology itself. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these projects have a certain pessimism and a sinister tone to them. There is anxiety mixed into all of this. And so it's understandable. And this goes into another prediction that you address that people may get more reliant on some kind of AI begetted nostalgia. I think that this Mm. is a really interesting point. And I think also as a child of the 80s, I remember the shift of the internet. And I can also really relate to this idea that we're going to just be desiring, not even necessarily going back so far as like pre-technological aesthetics or objects, but also just like earlier tech objects too. So maybe you can speak a bit about this idea of nostalgia and how you think it might interplay in the next years. Well, actually, I should just say, there's a technical problem that they call the Tapsburg AI problem Mm -hmm. that people talk about, which is that like AI trained on AI becomes inbred. That it's like, because this technology immediately is like flooding the internet with AI text and AI image, that if then AI trains on those text and image, it just loses the same resolution. You know, it starts to become weirder and weirder and more fixated on certain ticks and quirks. So there's actually even a technical aspect of this conversation about how the imagination kind of collapses when it just submitted to these tools, when these tools come to define imagination. And there's just like a great hunger for data sets that haven't already been infected by AI inputs. I just think that's an interesting corollary to this conversation we're having. But yeah, I mean, I think almost inevitably, one of the consequences of the intersection of AI and art is going to be a lot of nostalgia for a time before <laughs> AI and art and people looking around for uh, things that feel like they have meaningful histories and relationships to place and a story that these infinitely generated new things don't naturally have that are mainly completely asocial objects with no audience. I mean, Trevor Pedler makes this point that the majority of images in the world right now are just things machines made for other machines to look at. More images than you can ever look at that no one has looked at have no story, no connection to any kind of place, social life. So yeah, I mean, I guess I would bet on antiques, you know, I think the value of antiques is going mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm, yeah, I could see that. The Wunderkammer, the cabinet of curiosity, is going to have a new currency <laughs> in the next decade. Yeah, and, and I mean, something I talk about in the article towards the end, in the you know ninth prediction, uh, shock of the old, is that this is a pretty old pattern. That as new technologies come in, that they inspire people to reconsider history. So we think of medieval art as really... European art, that is, is really important part of the art historical story we tell. But that was not always the case until the Industrial Revolution, actually. People thought of that as like really primitive, crude forms of art. And it was the Industrial Revolution in England that caused this medieval revival as people looked back, felt that kind of the workshop production, the handmade quality 
what was previously perceived as a primitive quality of that kind of art actually connoted a more direct world, a world where people had like a personal relationship, you know, with a guild and a master, you know, in, in the artistic sense, had command of the tools and tremendous romance about that. That took the form of like the pre-Raphaelites. I mean, that's what is before Raphael is, is the medieval. And some of it, you know, went into William Morris and the arts and crafts movement and the new focus on, you know, limited edition, handmade stuff. And some of that took on a political dimension in that people who were thinking about the alienation of industrial life in various ways were drawn to that in sometimes paradoxical mm. ways because it was the case that the kind of radicalism that came out of the arts and crafts movement artistically expressed itself in stuff that only really rich people could afford. But it is a part of the art historical story that disruptive technological moments that seem to up in the way people relate to images or objects or life world tend to produce revaluations of different forms of our history. And I would expect a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to process, right? And I think in your essay, you mentioned the uh, trendiness of blacksmithing as something. So I guess we'll be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a kind of a kooky example, but, you know, there's argument in the New York Times about how everybody wants to be a blacksmith now. What is that about? I mean, it's about a lot of things, but one of the things it's about is a kind of physicality and a sense of the specificity of a process of object making that uh, digital life doesn't offer us right now. Everything feels very placeless and alienated in the technical sense that you don't know the processes by which it was created. And the one reaction to that is the fact that you can't get a space in a pottery studio in New York. Mm. Everybody wants to be a potter. You know, everybody wants that physical expression and relationship to the object. Yeah, so we'll have to see. Uh, we'll have to touch base at the end of next year and see if medieval-style artist guilds have popped up all over Brooklyn <laughs> and the Lower East Side. So stay tuned. In Brooklyn, I think we can predict it's true. <laughs> People have been blacksmithing and potting in Brooklyn for a while. So, um, yeah, I would really encourage everyone to read your excellent essay. It was such a illuminating pleasure, and I really enjoyed it. And I also really enjoyed this conversation with you today, Ben. So thank you so much. We've gone on for a while, but it's a big subject. We'll be coming back to it. It was great to chat. Thank you, Kate. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And also take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks for listening and see you next week.